Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for supporting the show and sending all this feedback. If you've been enjoying these conversations, I'd really appreciate you leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to share with a friend or a colleague who's looking for some inspiration. It really helps in getting more people to discover the podcast. Today's episode is packed with some inspiring stories from one of the UAE's top thinkers and intellectuals, Mish'al Al-Girgawi. We chat about how the Delma Institute, a think tank he founded and ran out of Abu Dhabi between 2012 and 2018, was the spark for his current startup, Axis, a company which he calls an extension of his curiosity with the audacious goal to build the world's best craft designed to help companies understand and navigate the world around them. And like any entrepreneur, Mish'al loves the creation process, but really dreads the fundraising. The customers look at your base idea and they're like, yeah. take it here, take it there, add a little mustard, like add a slice of tomato, etc." And like, suddenly you're like, okay, so this is the great sandwich that everybody wants to eat. They're like, yes. Well, with fundraisers, they're like, well, uh, you know, you have a burger, how can you turn it to a buffet of Greek salads? And you're a guy like, but it's it's not Greek salads. You're like, well, how does it scale to become like Indian food? You're like, well, people want to buy burgers. Welcome to Conversations with Lulu, a series of relaxed and candid discussions with entrepreneurs and business leaders who have become role models primarily in the MENA region. My name is Lulu Khazan. I'm an entrepreneur living in Dubai an investor, a mother, and your host. On today's show, I bring you some wisdom from Mish'al Al-Girgawi as he set out to make his own dent in the universe. We learn about his startup Axis and how a realization that he didn't know much about the world sent him on a quest to read about the history of the modern world, not only to learn what happened, but also to learn the way men act in all times and places. For more on Mishal, check out the show's notes. But for now, let's begin with Mishal's views on entrepreneurship, along with its trials and tribulations. The world is run by those who show up and you got to try. It's very interesting. I got to tell you, like the experience of me moving to New York. So I grew up in Dubai as this Emirati guy who speaks good English. Right. And so like you have to do so little, you know. When you're, when you're an Emirati in Dubai who speaks good English, you have to do so little to be worthy of being seeked out or having opportunities or something. And it's not because of anything. Like, it's just supply demand. There's 10% of us, but like, there's a million of us. And so, and in Dubai, there's like probably 130, 40,000 Emiratis. And out of those, and et cetera. And like, you know, it's just a supply thing. Yeah. And so to come to New York where nobody cares that you're Emirati. Oh, you speak good English? I mean, all of us do. Yeah. Right. And it's like, what do you have? And that's really interesting. Right. It's interesting. If you feel occasionally that you're the smartest kid in the room, you might want to go and find a bigger room. Because if you're not feeling dumb, you're not growing. And really, I mean, it was an excuse to grow. 
I could have built this company that I'm building in Dubai. Totally. It would have been easier. It would have been cheaper. I would have stayed at my mom's house. You know what I mean? Like there's so much that I would like been cheaper and like easier about this. Yeah. I wouldn't have to go and do this visa. And like, I mean, it was really complicated to come here. Um, but uh, there is something that I cannot put on paper that has been an incredible growth. And I think I will never be the person I was two years ago. And I don't even know what that means. Um, and it's been such a thing and I would not trade it for the world. In December, 2019, you wrote on Twitter that you had an amazing moment with your therapist and she had reminded you that in July of that year, you had told her that you were worried about fundraising, but you said, it's okay because if I get 98 out of a hundred people uh, saying no to me, all I need is two yeses. So Firstly, I felt like, wow, it's amazing that he's uh, talking about that uh, so openly because, you know, mental health is is, is an issue. Stress amongst founders uh, and uh, of businesses is an issue. I don't know what you were facing at the time, but, uh, but, I've, but I thought it was amazing that you uh, spoke about it. And secondly, why were you worried about fundraising? Because everybody should be worried about fundraising. Only the paranoid survive. Um, so I'm... I think on mental health, I think there's so much stigma about mental health, about what it is. And I think you don't stop working out because you have abs. You keep working out to keep having abs. Um, and you don't uh, go to a therapist when you have a problem. You go to a therapist so you continuously um, have a perspective on how to deal with those problems. Um, and those problems are anything. You know, you're continuously facing things socially, professionally, uh, you know, across across anything. And I think it's important uh, to know that, for example, when you have a bad mood, when you have a, like a, a depression, you can't be angry at it. You can be like, okay, this is happening. This is something which is not core to me. I'm feeling something. It's like wind. Let it come through you and let it pass through you. Don't fight it. Don't be like, what the hell? I'm this, I'm that. And you just let it go. It's not core to you. So much of what we feel and think is temporary. And so much of it is like cues, right? Because we're social creatures. Like I talk to you, you sold your startup. And then I'm like, oh, will I ever sell my startup? And like, that's not like, it's completely different. It's completely different. I have friends who are high metabolists. They can eat like, you know, a full tub of ice cream and they'll never have a belly. I'm not that person. I can't do anything about that. That's my physiology. I have to do a different kind of diet to stay kind of like fit. And that's just who we are. And so much of that is acceptance, but not in defeat. But so you can focus your efforts in what is it? What is it that you have? I think what, a lot of people what? are at war with the world. And yeah, and uh, and with themselves as well. But definitely, uh, I, I agree actually with that comment. So w what were some of the, the challenges that you've had with the, with your startup so far? I mean, I've seen a model of what you're trying to build. If maybe you can just briefly say uh, what it is you're trying to do. The one-liner is that we're a platform for companies um, to uh, get instant and accurate information about how every country, every commodity, and every industry works. So if you think about every externally facing corporate function, whether it's marketing, PR, communication, strategy, uh, government affairs, anybody who is not like internally focused, like we're not selling to the accounting or finance departments, they're continuously kind of in an infinite loop asking themselves, what happened? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What should I do? How do I go about it? 
And what we want to do is build a singular platform where we can service all of these questions and have them. So the habit formation that I want to basically, the, the habit that I want to form is when you walk into the office in the morning and you get your cup of coffee, you pull your inbox to find out what happened in the company. There is no obvious singular thing that you pull to understand what happened outside of the company that's relevant to you and work. So what is the equivalent of a Facebook for work? What is that? What does that look like? And the thing that I want to do is I want to do that. So in finance, for example, there's something called the Bloomberg Terminal, mm -hmm. which every person who works in markets and trades stocks or bonds, etc., uses as their primary record of truth about the world. What happened outside of the company? Yeah. I want to build that for companies. Um, and I would say the two biggest challenges for us is there's a macro challenge and there's a micro challenge. The macro challenge is obviously it really, really, really sucks to launch a company in June 2020. <laughs> It's incredibly hard. Yeah. So I, you know, we, you know, we are, uh, we, we, for whatever reason, we didn't launch as, uh, we didn't launch before COVID and we wanted to build a product that was this. And when you're building a B2B product, your beta is like a uh, consumer alpha. And so it was a little different. I came to Dubai in January and I demoed the product to like a hundred people in like 16 days. And the response was incredibly positive. And I was like, Oh my God, I just made all my sales targets for this year. This is fantastic. We're going to launch with a bang, etc." And then COVID hits and it's been extremely hard. Um, and by the time we launched uh, in June, it was really deep COVID, but you know, knock on wood, we've closed four customers Um, all Fortune 500 companies, um, and and our use case. So we sell to com multinational companies, and our first topic because we sell a single topic. You can sell. So we sold Saudi Arabia. That was our first one. So so just to I think uh, if I understood correctly. So for example, if I want to know about oil and gas, I would go to oil and gas, and I would see all of the companies and all of the people or the regulations around that area. You would see also all the developments in that space. So like the rise of shale oil, the rise of uh, Saudi oil versus yeah. uh, um, Russian regulations around the world, trends, interests, inflation related issues, um, anything that connects to that, that space. Okay. Um, and it would be the fastest, most cost effective way for you to get accurate information about that space. So how do you feel about being an entrepreneur? This is new to you. It's very, very interesting because you can move very quickly. Um, and it's amazing how many people want to tell you, um, how their experience, like people are very generous with their time. Like I was on a call today with somebody in the brick, a very large, uh, consumer, like FMCG company. And she sat down for an hour and told me literally all the ways by which she consumes information, like her current, like, uh, information diet and her stack. What would it take for her to become my customer? And what do we have to do next? So the ability to iterate and build things very quickly is super fascinating. So I love the control. Um, I really, really, really do not enjoy fundraising. <laughs> I find it incredibly uh, uninteresting. I find that the way to do it is to check some boxes. And, um, and I found it the most uninteresting. I love sales. I've never been a salesperson. 
I love sales because I feel like we're having a conversation about like, how do I improve your life? And you tell me, well, this is boring, but that is important. Like the customer, like all the features are coming from customers. The customers look at your base idea and they're like, yeah. take it here, take it there, add a little mustard, like add a slice of tomato, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And like, suddenly you're like, okay, so this is the great sandwich that everybody wants to eat. They're like, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, with fundraisers, they're like, well, uh, you know, you have a burger. How can you turn it to a buffet of Greek salads? And you're a guy like, but it's it's not Greek salads. You're like, well, how does it scale to become like Indian food? You're like, well, people want to buy burgers. Like, there's a lot of people. Like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm like, it's burgers. Here are people. Talk to my customers. So I find I find that conversation um, kind of. Uh, uh, but listen again, power law. The good investors are very, very, very good. Uh, but you know, there aren't a lot of them. Right. Um, and I find that very interesting. I find that uh, the, the very interesting investors really understand what their job is. So for example, people who look for two X, three X, five X, uh, outcomes. And so if you're so crazy of an idea, they'll turn it down, but you should actually invest in the craziest ideas because if you're a venture fund and you're returning uh, return similar to private equity or hedge funds or somebody buying in the S&P. Like if, if you bought Apple three years ago, you would have killed any venture fund that's trying to make 3x, 5x, 10x, right? Yeah. You have to hope for a 100x outcome, right? So you actually have to hope that, you know, 80% of your fund, your, your, your startups fail because they were so crazy. They're all SpaceX level investments. And it can't be like the 17th, like, you know, food app. It yeah. can't be that. There's nothing to say about food. Like I think a lot of people building things in the food space are doing very interesting stuff. But you find some people looking for pattern recognition. And I'm like, I don't know if you're going to earn alpha, like the big changing alpha like that. So, you know, that's been kind of very interesting about uh, uh, the startup space. Michal makes a great point about venture capital. Ultimately, as one of the riskiest asset classes, Venture capital should be about making big bets on big ideas. As they say in Silicon Valley, go big or go home. This is a debate we constantly have in our region. Funding is accessible to entrepreneurs who are building an e-commerce business or a food app, or a business where comparables exist outside the region and are performing well. Therefore, it should work in our region, provided, of course, we add the local flavor. When will entrepreneurs from the MENA region be encouraged to work on greenfield ideas, even at the risk of failure? Wouldn't it be nice to see unicorns out of a region of over 400 million people? Back to my conversations with Mish'al, where we explore his fascination with learning, what he calls JOFO, the joy of finding out. A thought that he didn't know much about the world pushed him to design a curriculum that led him to read over 60 books in over three years. He wrote a summary of his findings on Medium. I didn't grow up reading about history or I didn't go to like a really good school and my college was okay. And like, I didn't really have a liberal arts degree in that way where I understood philosophy and culture and history and all of that stuff. Right. And so I don't know really why Latin America is not as wealthy as like Northern America. I don't know why it was Europeans who colonized Africa and not the opposite. I don't know why China used to be great and then went through a century of like poverty and colonization, right? I don't know why, like, I don't know all of this stuff. I don't know why, right? None of us why are, 
And like, that's the thing that it bothers me when I don't know something and I really wanted to understand it. And at the time I was running Delma, my like think tank. And, and I was talking about the region and the Arab Spring really like was drawing comparisons. So like, it's a very interesting moment in history. And I was like, well, how do we have the present? So first thing first, I was like, okay, so what is the structure? So like one of the things about me is that I always think about things in architectures of information, right? I always like to think how something sits in relation to other things. If you talk to historians, they break down history to three periods. So there's the antiquities, there's the Middle Ages, and then you have modernity. So antiquities ends with the sack of Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire. The Middle Ages is that till the fall of Byzantium uh, by the Ottomans. Um, or, you know, 1453, some people say 1492, when the when America is discovered and Isabella and Ferdinand kick out the Muslims from Andalusia. But broadly, around 14, 1492 is when we consider modernity. So that includes the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, and kind of like the last period, the French Revolution, and then, you know, the present. So I said, okay, I'll get to the antiquities and Middle Ages one day. Let me just get the present, right? Okay. Um, or the modern history, rather. And I basically designed a curriculum of these 59 books or 67 books. And then I ended up thinking that a few of them were not like necessary to be mentioned. Um, and I basically read through those. And I did it across the region, across the world. So I read books on Latin America, Northern America, Africa, Europe, Asia. And uh, it was extremely, extremely rewarding um, to do that because you kind of finally figure it out It's kind of like, ah, this is how it works. So you wrote a summary about all of these readings on Medium, which was, uh, you know, it's a very succinct summary, but with, the, with some of the main highlights. And I'm going to read here. You said, uh, read history, not only to learn what happened, but also to learn the way men act in all times and places, especially now. I found that like fantastic. And I was wondering, is there is there like a particular story that comes to mind Uh, from what you've read that's like especially relevant today? If you think about um, someone like Napoleon, he's such a fascinating guy. He sells Louisiana to the Americans because he wants to conquer Haiti and he makes the idea of America possible. He uh, removes the Spanish uh, monarchs, which makes the Bolivarian revolutions, Simon Bolivar and everybody in Latin America possible. He um, Uh, goes and deposes of the Mamalik and eventually makes Muhammad Ali Basha and the rise in Egypt possible and the Nahd al-Arabiya and this idea of the Arab Renaissance and modernity. He also discovers the Rosetta Stone because of his, uh, and, and single-handedly helps us understand hieroglyphics. And I mean, he gives us the Napoleonic Code, which is a civil law that countries like Lebanon and the UAE have based their uh, laws upon and Egypt, as well as the rest of most of Europe, obviously. And he was born... A few years in Corsica, a few years after Corsica was incorporated into France, he could have been Italian, you know, and, you know, it's like a very interesting story because you're like one guy can really change the world. So he's really was kind of like an Elon Musk of like kind of geopolitics at the time and science and history. So for people that can't read, uh, you know, 67 books or, or, or whatever at a, at a, at a time, it takes me forever to read it. How, how do you do it? So I think uh, there's a book I really like that I read called Atomic Habits. And the idea of the book is very simple. Break it down to a daily habit and make it part of your identity, right? So don't have goals, have habits. So for example, if I say my goal is to be a well-read person, well, I don't know. My goal is to read 10 books. 
what does that mean? When you read 10 books, do you stop reading altogether? Or do you keep reading? Or do you read 20 books? Like, what happened? I want to lose 10 pounds. Do you gain them back when you lose them? Like, what happens when you hit the goal, right? And it's a very interesting theory. It's not mine, right? And so what I've done with reading and what I've done with a lot of things recently that have allowed me to do that is I don't think about how many books I read. I'm a person who reads 50 pages a day. Okay. So every day, at a certain point in the day, I make a tea and I just sit down and I just read 50 pages of whatever book I'm reading. And 50 pages a day, on average, that means 350 pages a week. That means a book a week. That means 52 books a year. But it's it's not, but I'm not thinking, oh my God, I'm trying to read 50 books a year. It's like an annual challenge, like these Goodreads challenges. I'm just a guy who reads 50 pages a day. And, you know, you become better and better and better. And sometimes um, the more you read, especially with nonfiction, with fiction is different. Um, you're like, oh, I know this. And you skip a couple of pages. Oh, I know what this guy is trying to say. Oh, yes, I, I'm familiar with this theory. Okay. And you become faster and faster and faster. It's a muscle. I take notes? I highlight. Uh, with fiction, I don't take notes because the goal of fiction is to make you feel something, not think something. But with uh, nonfiction, I definitely take notes. You went from reading the history uh, you know, of the modern world to uh, sci-fi, like completely unrelated to crypto. So how do you how do you decide on these? Well, I think first of all, like I like to give myself the agency that I want to be as well-rounded a person as possible. I want to be continuously curious, and I like to do things together. It's kind of like if I was a pastry chef, I wouldn't then just learn how to make like um, Italian dessert. I would go and learn how to make kulfi, like you know, and and an Indian dessert, right? Because. <laughs> okay. Because you don't want to stay in one place. You don't want to become typecast, right? Like if you're an actor and you just did like, um, this is why people like Brad Pitt and uh, DiCaprio are very interesting. They're not like, they refuse to be typecast. And I think that's very interesting. You have to move and you have to change from where you are. And the question is, how? what is the point of living? And I think, you know, for different people is other things. And for me is to manifest excellence, But right? what end, Michal? Is it just the There is no end. It is, yeah? Absolutely. So when I was a kid, I was raised, um, I was raised uh, in a very traditional family. Uh, I was very open-minded and everything, but I was raised in a very religious way. And I was told about heaven, right? And I always was like, okay, so what's the pitch? The pitch of heaven is that you go up there and you live forever and the weather is always spring and there's like rivers of honey and, 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 and yogurt and, and whatever, right? And I was like, that sounds good. I'm sold. But what I really want is to stay and live on earth forever. So, for example, I'm very interested in this idea of life extension. Like, what could we do? So when I watch Star Trek, you have these guys called the Vulcans, and Vulcans live on average 300 years. And if we lived 300 years, what would we do, right? But basically, if you lived 300 years, you would make completely different sets of decisions. One of them would be that you would not say, I have a career. You will say, I've had careers. Mm -hmm. And how beautiful would it be to basically have lived as an architect in New York and a writer in Berlin and a, a developer in Shanghai and then a farmer in like, you know, Tanzania, right? Uh, there's two sayings that I like. There's a saying from, a, uh, from the Brothers Karamazov, which is a Dostoevsky novel. The youngest brother is explaining to the oldest brother, the middle brother's uh, personality. And he says, for him, he does not need millions, but the resolution of his idea. And I kind of feel like that. I, you know, like money is a byproduct. Fame is a byproduct. Power is a byproduct. They are things that allow you to get to something. And that something is 
you know, enlightenment, manifest excellence, uh, um, um, a resolution of an idea. And really, I think that's kind of the thing that drives me. And the other quote that I really like is this quote by, um, I think, Jonah something Farrow. And he says, I can feel my bones shaking under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. You know, because you have free will, right? Like, what could you be? Well, you can be anything you like. This is something that I firmly believe in and something that led me to switch careers over the past two decades. Frankly, my search continues as I try to find what I'm meant to be. The trick is not to look at the next 10 years, though. The trick is to focus on my next step. And that next step is happening here in the UAE, a country that has opened up to the world and created opportunities for millions of people who, like me, may not have had the same opportunities back home. But what does this openness mean to an Emirati? I wanted to know Michal's views. I think it's a very personal question. So like what I say, I don't know if it represents what most people say. I think every generation probably is a little bit more open to like more because the norms are different, right? So for example, there's a joke is that Emiratis would not feel that the UAE is Emirati if there were no Indians, you know? Like it's such a core part of it in that way. Uh, when I was growing up, we did not know what a South African or Australian accent sounded like. They were British people and they were Arabs and they were Indians. It was very, very like, it was a s- smaller tapestry, right? I think it's, I think most people, most Imara- my impression is that most Emiratis are very comfortable with what they grew up with. And so I think for every generation, it's, they're open and they understand that the trade-off, right? Because there's an economic uh, benefit to this. And you pay for it culturally, if that's your thing, right? If you're very interested in kind of a very um, conservative, uh, classic idea of what does it mean? Uh, but, you know, Dubai is a port city and every port city in the world um, has always been um, kind of open to immigration um, and people coming in and contributing to that tapestry, and I find that a strength fundamentally. But like, I think the reason why people live in Dubai, you know, people would still come to Dubai whether it had the tallest tower in the world or not. I think the, the credit that is due to the country, the leadership, the society, the people, and also uh, citizens and residents who have made like kind of modern Dubai and the UAE is this kind of culture fundamentally, going back to my um, pet peeve, excellence, right? Like what's really good about Dubai is that it's fundamentally excellent. If you get on a plane and travel three hours in any direction, there is nothing better in those criteria than Dubai. And people really want to have like decent lives. They want to like be civilized. They want to stop at red lights. They want to get stuff done. They want to have a nice meal. They want to build a business and grow it and sell it one day. Congratulations to you, by the way. You know, they want to do these kind of things. And, you know, if you go and try to do that in, you know, anywhere in the three hour difference, it's a little harder. As we get closer to wrap up the episode, I wanted to learn more about Mishal's sources of inspiration that led him to become a renowned columnist between 2008 and 2010, and how he was capable to write about ideas that intrigue him, from the impact of shawarma on Dubai to Mohammed bin Salman and the Qatar crisis and more. So a common friend of, a friend of ours, Sultan Al-Qasimi, and uh, 2008 was the year of national identity. And there was this conference in Abu Dhabi, and I went from Dubai. I spent the night in a hotel. Sultan couldn't come. And I basically wrote Sultan a 500-word summary of the conference. And I was like, dude, you didn't come. This happened. So-and-so said this. And Sultan responded, and he was like, 
There's this new thing called The National launching in Abu Dhabi next month. And, um, you know, you should, you, should, you should turn this into an article. And I was like, he's like, just add 200 words. I was like, I, I've said everything, you know, like one of my um, advantages or disadvantages is that I'm a summarizer. Like I can say things very, very quickly. And I was like, I don't know what else to add. He's like, add suggestions. I was like, okay. And it became 700 words. And next thing I know, he connected me to the, to the, to the editor there. And suddenly I had an article published. And my second article was so random because I was like, okay, so I wrote about it. Like, what do I write? So I really wrote about how taxis drive really quickly in Dubai, like super pedestrian, like what the hell, right? Like taxis drive really fast. And the reason they drive really fast, because the way they're incentivized, the economics of the cab um, forces them to continue to make that most of their money at like when they turn the meter on. So they really want to drop people off quickly. And that's making the road dangerous. And I started making this macro point that the incentives of cabs are making people dangerous. And that's how I kind of ended up talking about kind of socioeconomic, kind of urban civic issues, which is like, how do you have a great city, right? What is a great city made up of? And that was kind of a key theme of my writing in the beginning. But uh, it was really interesting. I never thought I was going to be this columnist guy. I mean, how did you get these ideas? You know, it's kind of like, it's like a funnel. It's kind of like you don't realize that you have all these impressions of things. And as soon as I found a medium to kind of communicate those ideas, I was like, well, you know what? I have a thought about entrepreneurship and I have a thought about urban development and I have a thought about architecture and I have a thought about this. And suddenly everything that I did in my life was to feed my article, which is what columnists do, right? They go out, they watch movies, they read books, they read articles, they walk in the street. They're looking for material always. And I basically became fundamentally like a collector of impressions and I would process those and develop an idea on top of it and just like write these pieces. And it became insatiable. But do you have like a like a system, you know, where, I mean, you said you take notes regularly, for example, and how do you identify what's important to write about and, and what's just you know, common knowledge. So this is, okay, so first of all, this was the BlackBerry days. There was no iPhone, mm-hmm. right? And so there was this, and the BlackBerry was a smartphone, right? You could, uh, there's BBM. So I would write myself emails uh, when I was meeting people. And I used to also walk around with like a physical notebook and I used to write a, a lot of things. So I bought a lot of these, um, these notebooks, uh, um, moleskins. So my process was you talk to people and they give you nuggets and you add those nuggets and you have an impression. And I also started off with a ring, right? So I started off writing about Dubai. I'm from Dubai, you know, I grew up across the street from Burj Khalifa when it was a central military zone. I've seen the city change. What does it mean? How do you feel about all the things that are happening? You know, you have Gerard's Cafe and like old Jumeirah and then you have new Jumeirah developing. Like I wrote a, rest- I wrote a piece once about, um, about shawarma, like a whole article about like, what does it mean to have shawarma in Dubai? Wow. So like, there was some stuff which was like really like um, uh, uh, young adult stuff. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I got to a point writing about like one of my last pieces I wrote was about MBS, uh, was about the Qatar crisis. Like I went from shawarma to the Qatar crisis, you know what I mean? And it was like, okay, I get this. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And I kept zooming out and zooming out uh, and thinking about um, where I was from and where I belonged in the world and how I thought about that ring. And that ring kept expanding and expanding, expanding. And probably if I would go back to writing today, I would write some pretty global stuff um, in that way. So just to wrap up a few like uh, very quick uh, questions with super short answers. Uh, I know you're in arts. Uh, I was just wondering who was your favorite artist? My favorite artist is Haid Kahraman. Mm-hmm. She is Kurdish. 
uh, American Iraqi, um, and uh, she does these beautiful, some would say Japanese-inspired, you know, drawings of women primarily um, that are very, very beautiful works. And I'm the lucky um, owner of three pieces. Um, and she's a fascinating, fascinating artist, I would say. And what is uh, what is happiness to you? Happiness is uh, is peace and growth. Peace and growth. Well, you know, personal growth, manifesting yeah. that excellence. You know, it's a, a, a fit body, a house full of love and a, a calm mind. And if I were to give you a billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road, what would you write on it? Mm, I was going to say be best because that's Melania Trump's yeah. line. Yes. <laughs> which is very unfortunate because it's like, it's correct, right? Like in a way it's correct. Like bring bring yourself to the world. I'm always curious, all these people who are unable to reach their potential from a very like self-interested way, right? If you think of it that way, what am I missing in the world that this person does not become the best thing? What is the novel that they have not written? What is the startup that she has not built? Uh, what is the uh, music composition uh, that has not been composed because this person has fallen on hard times? What does a Silicon Valley look like with um, 20% African-Americans? What does uh, a science fiction genre look like with a lot more Arabs writing in it? What does the Arab Game of Thrones look like, right? These are all things that would be possible and would enrich the world if more people had the agency and the capacity and the ambition uh, um, um, and the opportunity, obviously, to be the best version of themselves. I think we have to live in a world where everybody has an opportunity to do that. And in that way, kind of the extreme individualism, I think, of the right and the extreme collective like interest in welfare are really trying to solve the same problem, which is we want to create the best version of this world possible. And we do that by empowering everybody to be individuals, right? Thank you for joining me on this power-packed episode of Conversations with Lulu. If you've enjoyed this, I would love to hear from you. You can leave me a review on Apple Podcast or reach out to me on Instagram at Lulu Hazen. For collaborations, partnerships, or guest recommendations, you can drop me an email at lulu.hazen at gmail.com. See you all in two weeks. You speak very well. You're you're quite knowledgeable. You're quite open-minded, quite charismatic. It's uh, they're they're good, they're good qualities. Is this going to be part of the podcast? <laughs> Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.